Welcome to episode one of the second season of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast aims to bring you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. We've got a great episode lined up for you this week, but before we get to that, Zoe, we've been on a break for the summer. Uh, looking outside, it's well and truly autumn. So what have you been up to? Mainly working, working, working and uh, lots of, of Zooms. I think that now feels like a, a really exciting time in charity digital. There's uh, lots of organisations doing some really innovative work and um, plenty of um, charities also really keen to to make progress with digital. Uh, yeah, really, really exciting times for sure. Yeah, so I, I spent a little time away uh, over the summer, I guess. It seems very distant now, the summer, but I spent a little bit of time away. Kids have all gone back to school. Work's getting busier. Um, I think it's uh, it's been a really quiet summer, um, but things starting to pick up. And I'm hearing from a lot of different people that that uh, they're getting busier as the, the autumn kicks in. And uh, we're racing towards 2021, of course. So by the time we put out our final episode, we'll be uh, we'll be getting towards the end of the year. Uh, So a couple of things that caught my eye in tech news this week is yesterday I attended an event organised by the RSA. Uh, It was it was all on online. uh, So uh, no public transport was was engaged with (laughs) attending the event. Uh, But it was really, really interesting. If you're a fan of Bruce Daisley and work that he's been doing around how organisational culture is changing, uh, how leaders are having to operate differently at the moment, the impact of remote work and what's good about it and what needs to be improved Uh, this event was a really really useful primer in his ideas so I'll pop a link to that in the show notes in particular I thought he made some really interesting points about work absolutely now disconnecting from being a physical location that you go to and how organizations are effectively having to reinvent themselves with online communities and how uh, the organisations themselves and also the, the culture and the way of working together then needs to focus on helping employees network and learn and grow and share together. I think it leads to a really radical and exciting reinvention uh, of the way that, that charities and indeed companies look in the future. So I was very excited about that. We'll put, pop a link to that in the show notes. Um, other thing that I wanted to mention this week in tech news, there was a report from the CBI uh, called Learning for Life, uh, really fascinating on the impact of digital on workforce skills in the UK. So key point from the reports uh, was that nine out of 10 employees will need to reskill by 2030 at an additional cost of 13 billion a year. And as you go into the the meat of the report, really fascinating to hear about what this means for traditional notions of learning and development and HR uh, and how they may need to reinvent themselves and to become a bit of an internal powerhouse within organisations to really drive this change and to make sure you're upskilling existing staff as well as recruiting uh, the right skills uh, to to get through the door to help your your organisation be fit for purpose so we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well it's absolutely well worth a read and we'd love to hear from 
any organisations who are taking their first steps on that journey and looking at how they can get all their staff skills up in digital. And we've also got a, a podcast recommendation that we will share at the end of the, the interview, which is this week with Rodri Davis. We are very excited about this week's guest. Rodri Davis is Head of Policy at Charities Aid Foundation and leads Giving Thought, CAF's in-house think tank, focusing on current and future issues affecting civil society. He also presents CAF's Giving Thought podcast, which looks at these issues through a mixture of deep dive explorations and interviews with civil society figures from around the world. It's a brilliant podcast and we would include a link to it in the show notes. He's also the author of Public Good by Private Means, How Philanthropy Shapes Britain, which traces the history of philanthropy in Britain and what it tells us about its modern role. He has researched, written and presented on a wide range of topics, from charity taxation to the civil society implications of cutting edge technologies such as AI and blockchain. And he is much in demand as an advisor to governments, businesses, charities and philanthropists. Rodri, welcome to Starts at the Top. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. Good to see you. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. I think, yeah, like everybody else, uh, you know, sitting in the same four walls that I've been in for quite a while, but they're, they're nice four walls, so it's okay. Excellent. Very good. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about, obviously, with all your fantastic experience across philanthropy uh, and also tech innovations and talking about where fundraising is going in the sector generally. Um, there's, there's a lot there. I'm really keen to, to talk through with you. Uh, and also you and I have had a lot of conversations over the years about um, what the future of civil society could look like and the role that technology plays in that as well. So we're very excited about digging into all of that today and, and hearing your thoughts. So with that in mind, I um, wanted to start by asking you about what are the big trends that you're seeing in how civil society has used digital since we went into lockdown? Um, I mean, I guess the, the obvious biggest trend of, of all is the fact that so many more organisations are using digital or seeing it as something that they have to adapt to. Um, and I think that that sort of enforced digitization or pivot to digital has been really interesting and in that we've seen lots of organizations manage to make changes in an incredibly short space of time to the ways that they do things, either sort of internal organizational operations or the way they deliver services and help people that they probably thought were impossible. And they've learned an, an incredible amount and there's been some amazing innovation and adaptation um i guess it's also been interesting as that has gone on and that sort of first phase of everybody very quickly adapting you know has, has bedded down i think we've started to see some interesting thought being given to what we might be missing as we shift to digital and what were the kind of the elements of doing things in person that we all got something out of whether that's just the kind of the ability to have you know, accidental meetings with people and the sort of um, the happenstance that might happen in a workplace that leads to creativity or actually the sort of soft human elements of delivering services to vulnerable and marginalized groups that actually are very difficult to replicate in, in a digital environment. And also sort of more prosaically, I think, you know, there was a novelty to having lots of meetings on Zoom when we all started this. And I think everybody's realized that that actually would probably quite like to have some meetings in person. So so I think around that, it's it, the really interesting question is, 
what kind of balance we're going to end up with in terms of keeping some of the good stuff about what we've been forced to do and trying to kind of get back some of the elements of maybe what we've lost over the short term. Um, I mean, I think the the other two things that I've I've seen as a result of that, I mean, one, it's probably less good is that in that digitization, I think it's had to happen so fast that everybody sort of looked for off the shelf ways of doing things. And as a result, we've all become very reliant on quite a small handful of sort of platforms and cloud providers. And I think there are questions we need to ask about what that reliance means and to sort of to what extent we are you know at the whims of some of these platforms in terms of what they decide to do when they change the service offering or kind of what their use of data is and what their kind of privacy conditions and ownership models are um, and also you know how they monetize what they do and i think that's also kind of raised a bigger question um across the sector in terms of understanding the value of of data um which i think the, the positive side of it is we've seen in terms of what the charity sector's been doing responding to the pandemic, that that kind of collecting and harnessing the power of data to understand where needs are and how to address them has shown lots of people in the sector what can be done, but actually shows what more needs to be done in, in order to kind of really maximize our, our ability to make use of that. Um, and again, it's sort of it's something that maybe has been done quite well in the short term but i think the longer term lesson is okay how do we actually as a sector work out how to collect and store and use data more effectively in the future um so i think you know those are some of the things that i've been noticing and such good points i mean it's been such a huge period of learning hasn't it and fascinating to see how charities and other organizations are getting to grips with technology more as you say there's that human element isn't there and i've been reading lots of stuff recently as you say about that thing of the the serendipity of those meetings that you might have had occasionally people by the the water cooler or by the the uh, kettle in the office kitchen in your experience because obviously you've worked from home quite a lot for a long time as as have i um is there a way to create that serendipity or those those chance meetings where great ideas happen when you're working remotely? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this and whether there is, you know, there are ways of kind of trying to get digital serendipity. I think it's, in, in my personal experience, I've found it sort of harder to replicate what happens within an organisation. I mean, I, I've sort of worked slightly remotely even whilst at CAF. Um, for the last four years or so, although I was always going back to the office and and kind of prioritizing FaceTime meetings when I was doing that and sort of making room to just kind of have meetings with people externally and have coffees and things. And a lot of that was doing that that kind of hard work around serendipity and generating ideas. And I was often speaking at or going to events as well, and that helped. I guess without that bit and just being stuck at home, um, what we've had to do is just make sure we have you know, more meetings using some of these tools like, you know, Zoom and Teams and things like that, that are, that allow some space for just, you know, kind of having unstructured chat. Although I think it, you, it takes a lot of work to make the format conducive to to sort of having those ideas. And, and also, I guess, you have a more self-selecting group of people involved in a meeting because you have to decide from the outset who they are. You don't digitally bump into people from another department in the same building in the same way that you might do i guess the thing i've i in my experience i found easier is having that kind of serendipity with people 
in other organizations and this you know comes on something we might talk about later actually about the way in which these dis- digital tools slightly break down the walls of the organization you're working with and make you feel more of a part of a sort of wider network because through things like doing the podcast but also by being you know a relentless hack on social media it's actually you know i find those things you can get some of the serendipity because at its best something like twitter for instance i've developed loads of relationships with people on twitter that have eventually turned into you know quite a good running rapport that then eventually when i've met those people in person it's been lovely and we've kind of got quite a long track record of having interacted and that's led to some real sort of tangible real world things but you know it does it's quite an active process so again if you want it to happen you sort of have to prioritize it and then work out where that sits in terms of your overall balance of work otherwise you fall into the trap of just fiddling around on twitter because it's fun to do um but you know it generally does have have benefits i think around solving some of those those problems with with serendipity so you have to create your own virtual water cooler in in other words which sounds kind of fun actually yeah and, and i'm sure people who have thought about this more have even better ways of doing it than just do, you know doing it via a platform like twitter i mean i think there are all kinds of virtual meetups and and things that people are doing that maybe create some of those spaces and, I, and I, it, in a way the interesting thing about what's going on at the moment is seeing how we're learning to use some of these tools a bit better to kind of to to get some of those benefits and people who've been using them for a while and are kind of used to remote working and distributed teams i think have a lot to teach the rest of us and i think you know, we need to, to listen to them as we're all trying to sort of work out how to adapt to this way of working. I think a lot of these channels as well, such as email and, and even Twitter, I think are, are sort of email is a quite a closed group, isn't it? So you're always just talking to the same people about shifting tasks along. Twitter is becoming, um, I think in the last in the last six months or more, it's become more of a, a, a sort of certainly within my networks, more of a sharing on the political situation and 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 the same sort of topic so i i just worry with the, the the sort of the use of social media that we kind of all start to exist in a slight echo chamber so you're right we have to work really hard to break outside of that yeah i mean i think that is absolutely the problem and there's the there's the sort of self-selecting bit of that which is if you're establishing those connections you know it's even if you're aware of the echo chamber problem it, it's it's a very active process to to sort of broaden that out to include people in that group who don't share your opinions or view of the world. And it's not always that fun. I mean, the point about having an echo chamber is it replicates something that's true about offline existence, which is you tend to hang around with people who are broadly like you and have similar views because that's just nicer in general. But what, what, what we need is those situations where you don't have so much choice about that and you come into contact with people for some reason who may come from you know a very different viewpoint to you but you kind of have a reason to interact with them on a civil basis for for some reason and i guess what is the the virtual equivalent of that i'm not quite sure yet if i could wave magic wand then uh, and think about where uh, charities will be at with their working practices and how they're using digital in, in six months' time. Um, flowing on from what you were talking about there, what would you like to see? If we were going to get in that time machine now and see where we're at in six months' time, what would you like to have happened? Oh, yeah. It's the old the old magic wand question. Um, I mean, I guess I, I'd like 
more sort of a broad point is more intentionality about what platforms and and tools we're using and why i think there's a at the moment as i say because everybody's done it very quickly there's just a sort of what's there let's use that um attitude and they're not always you know necessarily the right platforms either because they don't have the functionality or they don't kind of bring some of the benefits we've been talking about there in terms of the sort of wider ability to bring bring people together or it might be that actually some of them aren't as in line with the sort of fundamental ethos of charities as other options might be that are out there that may be a kind of open source or come from a you know it's a whole different sort of background within the tech world um and i think charities if we're now accepting that a lot of them are going to have to rely to at least some extent on some of these tools from for the longer term not just the short term it probably needs to be not dictated by the ones that they decided to use in the first five minutes of the pandemic you know for the next five to ten years um and there's you know i think there's a lot that can be done there to bridge the gap between the wider charity sector and the smaller bit of civil society that's, that's been kind of engaging with this stuff and dealing with it for a long time. There are organizations that have been thinking about tech issues and sort of how they relate to, you know, um, to rights issues and this sort of stuff who actually have a lot of good thinking on alternatives to mainstream platforms and that sort of stuff. And at the moment, I haven't really seen that filter through into the thinking of charities about how they approach digital. And I think that would be a really kind of interesting place to to join some dots um i mean i guess in in terms of a, a magic one for the next six months i mean one thing would probably be more i mean less about the sort of the digital element of it and more about what that means in terms of more old-fashioned stuff about you know how people work which i think quite a lot of digital transformation i know we've talked about this before so it actually ends up coming down to working practices and people's attitude to working practices if if we're sort of shifting from an attitude to remote or virtual working or home working which is not it's something you can do if you want to and it's a benefit for you as part of this job to you have to do it because we as an employer are sort of asking you to to me the dynamic there shifts in a way that means that the responsibility is increasing on the employer to make sure that you are supported to be able to do that because you're not asking people to do it on the basis that they are well set up for it and it's a nice thing for them you're saying if you want to keep this job you sort of have to and for some people that's very difficult i mean i feel lucky i've got a house here that's mostly quiet i have a room i can work in i've got broadband and all that sort of stuff lots of people are maybe living in shared houses have to work on a laptop on you know on a sofa or on a bed or something like that may not have very good wi-fi you know actually just the cost of running it and everything if if people are individually bearing that i think over the longer term that is going to be a problem and actually thinking about what we're asking of people if this is a, a longer term change to the way they're working you know is is something that charities particularly it feels like something they could model best practice at in terms of how they treat the people who work for them so you know i'd, I'd like to see some some more kind of thinking being done on that I think that's such a good point because there's a potential digital in inclusion issue there as well, isn't there, about people's ability to access the tools and the platform when they're working from home if they don't have the infrastructure or the, the kit or the environment um, to do it. Uh, I'm 
actually about to um, interview someone for our blog about um, it's a charity that, that specialises in helping survivors of domestic violence. And one of the things I'm talking to this charity leader about is how you spot those signs of domestic violence when people are working remotely. Uh, so you absolutely there's a whole host of issues, isn't there? Yeah, and I, th I think you're right there. It's it, you know, I was thinking about it there and because of people working for charities, but actually for many of them, it's at least as much about the people they're working with or trying to to serve. Um, and both it kind of creates new problems in terms of things, as you say, like being able to identify the issues, but also the, you know, the question of digital exclusion there, if you're working with groups for whom it's totally unreasonable to expect them to have access to all of these tools become you know, very major. I, I was involved in CAF for a, a couple of months with, um, we had a big uh, coronavirus emergency response fund, which is sort of £5 million fund. We were giving out small grants, very sort of short-term ones to, to help organisations who'd been affected. And it was really interesting being part of a grant-making panel because we were seeing all of these kind of applications come in from small organisations. And I lost count of how many of them, basically it was, we need a laptop, so that people who work for us can actually do their job. We need to make sure we've got, you know, licenses for Zoom or any other software. And in many cases, we need to be able to give some of that hardware and software to the people we're working with, often kind of older people, um, groups there where they're working to help uh, with around things like loneliness because they couldn't do anything without that and the infrastructure wasn't there otherwise. So I think, you know, that that is going to be one of those issues we have to kind of address if we're thinking about a digital first approach from now on in lots of places. Absolutely. There's um, many issues to, to work through there, aren't there? Um, so speaking of, of, of which, uh, you and I have talked a lot over the years about digital ethics and the role that charities should play in that and some of the, the key things that they need to think through, uh, particularly at the moment with this accelerated adoption of technology that we're seeing across big parts of the sector. What do you think are the most important digital ethical issues that charities need to have on their radar um so i guess i've, I've been talking to various people about this quite a bit and I'm, my thoughts on on the whole question of sort of digital and tech ethics have probably shifted a little bit in that i i increasingly wonder whether the framing around ethics is entirely the right one because i think the the problem that a lot of people pointed out is if we put if we frame all of these problems as ones of tech ethics that that usually sort of puts the power in the hands of the tech industry to say right well we're, it's up to us to solve this set of problems that actually we created in the first place but don't worry we've got this and it actually in a lot of cases you know on what basis are we expecting them to do that because they haven't done it so far and the track record's not been been great and when you look at other industries you know like it's tobacco industry or bits of the healthcare industry Again, we sort of tried for a while to let them sort it out for themselves. And in the end, it came down to, you know, good old fashioned legislation and regulation. And I think there's going to be a fair amount of that required in the tech world as well. And, you know, I think charities and civil society will probably need to get involved in sort of advocating on some of that. That being said, you know, there's still a whole question about charities using the tech as it is now and what the ethical questions around that are. Um, I mean, to me, I think there's there's one question around something we touched on back at the start about understanding what some of these tools actually are. And particularly, I think, around the fact that these platforms that we're increasingly doing things on, whether that is sort of 
quite specific platforms, uh, you know, messaging platforms like Zoom or whether it's things like Facebook or Twitter, they're not actually public spaces. You know, we think that we treat them as if they're digital public spaces, but they're not. They're actually, you know, controlled and operated by a very small number of organizers of, uh, of companies who have then a massive amount of sway over the choices we're presented with and what we're able to do and how we're able to kind of associate with people. Um, and that's, you know, there's probably some things we should be concerned about in terms of how much power we're giving over to, to those organizations. I think also the way the tools that a lot of those platforms have developed in order to sort of fight for our attention um, over the last few years and the sort of incentives they have developed as a result, unfortunately, which kind of lead them towards simplifying issues presenting the most kind of extreme version of content because that's what keeps you clicking and keeps you on the platform i think we know now that a lot of those are not very healthy and promote not very good behaviors and aren't good for our mental health and well-being i think one of the big questions for charities is how do they find ways of cutting through that noise to get their message across but without kind of just getting on board with those same tools and techniques and becoming part of the problem. Um, and I think that is a real challenge because I think you could be sort of holier than thou and say, well, we're not going to do any of that. You know, we're going to stay stay pure and above it all, but then nobody would hear what you're saying because it would just be lost in, in all of this other noise. Um, so I think that that's a, a big issue. And then I'd say the the last one, which I think has been really interesting to see the sector become much more aware of, I think, over the last year or so, is around the way in which uh, automated decision processes and algorithms shape so many of the thing, you know, so many different areas of our life in terms of the choices that we're able to make and that are made about us. And, you know, I think the really big shift here in the UK was around the Ofqual exam algorithm and the whole Ferrari about what that produced in terms of predicted grades and people suddenly thinking you know my god that's what can happen when they apply a not very well thought through algorithmic process to to this data set but i think a lot of people then pointed out yeah well if you think that's bad you know you'd really like to know where else in your life people are applying some of these processes and that those ones are, are much more hidden and we don't even really know what the algorithms are and i think people are starting to wake up to that whole question of sort of bias and unintended consequences that comes when you apply some of these processes without really thinking it through. And I think that's going to be a whole big set of issues for charities over the coming years. We should, um, we'd be remiss in, in this week, I think it was, uh, it's a couple of weeks old now, isn't it? The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which covers a lot of, of these issues. And even watching that, I was quite surprised that it was, you know, still predominantly the the the, well, the people speaking out and the people coming forwards from these organisations were predominantly the sort of the white males that we we believe are building these systems and and that bore it out. Um, but it would be it would be good to put that in the show notes to make sure that people that haven't seen it do see it. There are not a lot new in it, I don't think. A lot of stuff that that the likes of us will probably have seen and thought about and would be on our agendas but i think the interesting thing there is the uh, the amount of people that have come to me knowing the work that i do in the areas that i work in um saying have you seen it and wanting to discuss the issues with me um so i think there's a wider societal interest that's brought about by by having documentaries like that on a platform like netflix that does help uh move the conversation forwards a little if not getting into the long grass and it was also encouraging to see that coalition of charities working on the facebook 
boycott campaign this summer mm. it uh it feels like there is perhaps a bit more of a consensus growing around why these issues matter and the fact that we need to tackle them as a sector is is that your reading of the situation Rodri do you think we are beginning to see that shift or or, or what do you think it'd be great to hear I, your no I, I I agree on that and it's it's easy in some ways to you know to be a bit cynical about that and some people work as they're like well you know what does Facebook care if this group of people stop using it for a little bit of time they'll be back in a week and they'll barely notice in their profit margins but I think it was it, it was an early example of something that probably will become and needs to become a wider trend which is for civil society to wake up to the fact that that it does have power when it comes to to sort of um tackling some of the the failings of these these tech giants and i think th- that model of you know that we were talking about at the beginning of sort of seeing these as tech ethics issues and and what civil society needs to do is engage with the tech companies on their terms and sort of help them and handhold them through working through through the ethics issues the the practical problem there is always that the power dynamics are all screwed up because you've got these charities or civil society organizations which even if they're very big are minuscule in comparison to the the sort of power and financial resources of the tech companies so they're not really being listened to in those rooms, in my experience. And even where they're sort of invited into those rooms, the danger is it's because it looks good to have this group of people in there. And then they have an event which then allows the tech company to say, look how wonderful and and ethical we're being, which I think, you know, it probably sounds a little bit cynical. (laughs) Unfortunately, I've sort of seen it a few times. So so I think the the thing is there's there's nothing wrong with engaging on, on sort of, on a good faith basis with the tech industry but i think the realization is that actually that has to be accompanied with also trying to use public opinion as a driver and try and sort of shift consumer behavior to really you know add some stick to the carrot as well and hit the the tech companies where it hurts because i think fundamentally it you know things are probably not going to change as much as they need to change without the tech companies feeling like they're going to lose out in ways that actually affect them and civil society does have the ability to do that maybe not directly but perhaps more through the sorts of things we were saying there by trying to make these issues more mainstream and make people aware that they are things that they should care about and i think i think that's happening and i think some civil society organizations are playing you know a good part in that and i guess opening up that conversation that to me is ones we should be having as a society about where do we want to strike the balance between getting the benefits of automation and personalization? You know, we like having recommendations about what to listen to and what to watch. And we like kind of, you know, not getting adverts that are irrelevant to us and, and actually kind of getting um, uh, sort of tailored uh, suggestions on what to, to shop for. But at the same time, occasionally it becomes apparent to us that in order to do that we've given up too much control over our own data and and when when you get an issue like the whole thing with facebook and cambridge analytica blowing up you suddenly go whoa no 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 that's that's not what i meant you know like yes you know i like having a timeline that's full of interesting things but i didn't realize you were going to take all my data and go and sell it to to one of these shady companies and i think kind of working out where we want to draw the boundaries on giving away data in return for some of those benefits is the sort of big question that we need to be asking ourselves. There was an article yesterday in Wired that said that the um, uh, Google and Microsoft staff were set 
setting up uh, the UK's first tech trade union. I'm um, not sure whether you saw that, but worth having a look at. And if if that body is set up and works well, is that something that civil society should be engaging with in greater detail? I, I would think so. I mean, I haven't. I saw some stuff about uh, the Wired story about them unionising. I wasn't sure whether that was within the the magazine. Uh, I only saw the the headline, but no, it'd be really interesting. I mean, kind of trade unions are, or sort of historically are, you know, an important part of civil society. And actually, in lots of countries around the world, when you're thinking about sort of movements around, uh, you know, establishing rights and all these sorts of things, trade unions are very much at the forefront. And I guess for historical reasons here in the UK, that's probably been less the case in recent decades i mean more broadly in the tech industry and in silicon valley there seems to be um moves towards rediscovering the benefits of sort of collective action uh, amongst employees um and you can probably see you know the why this actually does have power in the response of the companies i mean amazon's response to the suggestion that any of its employees would unionize is pretty stridently no which shows that they sort of recognize that actually there is power in that kind of thing um and that's the sort of power that you know civil society more broadly should be looking to 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 exercise so it's kind of it can work with citizens to get them to exert power through public opinion it can work with people to exert power as consumers but it can also work with people inside the tech industry who genuinely want to see it be better and are sort of finding ways to upwardly influence the companies they work in. So yeah, I think it, you know it's definitely an avenue that that civil society should be looking to kind of work with. I might have to join that that union and uh, see if I can get some advice on the hours that I'm making myself work. So, <laughs> so how you? I don't know whether I could actually join it based on the fact. Can you that go on I... strike against yourself? <laughs> this is the thing. That you can... Yeah, good, good idea. Good idea. Working hours for tech, yeah, be good. Yeah, yeah. Working hours, benefits, all that sort of stuff. Can we talk about fundraising? Because uh, Roger, I know you've got a, a lot of expertise, but particularly around the some of the key trends there and and philanthropy as well. Now, obviously, charity fundraising's been under a, a huge amount of pressure. It's been a really challenging time for charities to generate income. Um, what are some of the big changes that you think? will come from this period when everyone's behavior is changing so significantly um what do you think the key trends could be perhaps around use of things like blockchain cryptocurrency uh and some other tech innovations um yeah i think it's uh, it is really interesting i guess there's as with a lot of things to do with the pandemic i there are some things that have changed and then there are other things that were kind of already trends that you could determine that have maybe been accelerated in, in one way or another. Um, I mean, I guess just taking your last point now, I think around you know blockchain and cryptocurrency is something I've worked on quite a lot, although not so much for the last year or, or so. Um, I think in a way it's still too early to to tell on the the long-term implications of, of blockchain and crypto, although actually the, the cryptocurrency market has gone back quite a lot more buoyant as things like gold have been been hit in terms of value and people are sort of seeing it as a as a safe haven. Um I I still don't know that it's it's slowly crept into the world of fundraising and philanthropy and there's been more of the sort of you know crypto philanthropy market over the last few years, although it hasn't gone mainstream in, in any way. And I think that still remains a sort of niche area. And there's some interesting things bubbling along under the surface. Um, and, you know, I, my, my sort of broad sense 
having thought about it quite a bit is I still feel like there is something interesting about what the technology that, you know, blockchain technology shows us we might be able to do in terms of creating new kinds of digital assets or allowing things to be done in a sort of decentralized or distributed way. And whether that is kind of organizational governance or other things, what I'm not sure about is when he, whether any of the existing examples of blockchain blockchains or platforms built on blockchain or even blockchain itself as we currently understand it is going to last the distance but i think those trends will so somebody will try to make it possible to for people to kind of organize in in distributed ways whether they use blockchain or not similarly people will want to kind of build digital assets that have unique value um so i think it's kind of worth sticking with it at the level of trends which i i kind of I find with a lot of technology, actually, the, the more that you can get away from the specific technology or platform and think about what are the affordances of this technology in terms of what it allows us to do or what it enables, that gives you a, a better chance of making predictions that don't immediately turn out to be wrong. So it's usually sort of better to do that. Um, I mean, I guess the in terms of the the trends that we have seen, I mean, I think one that I think one one I think is interesting is it feels like there is more of an emphasis on the idea of participation, you know, in, in addition to simply kind of supporting through financial means. Um, and this is not new, I think. It's been something that's been bubbling around for a few years. But I think we see it, we've seen it reflected in some of the thoughts around things like new power and kind of, you know, new ways of people doing things organizationally that get away from kind of traditional hierarchical models of, of organization. Also, I think we saw it already reflected in the fact that there was so much enthusiasm and focus on social movements, kind of non-traditional digital social protest movements like Black Lives Matter or Extinction Rebellion over the last few years, and then really being at the forefront of, or seen as, as, as at the forefront of driving um, change in lots of areas. And, and I'd kind of been asking myself i think it's really interesting why is it that people are looking to these maybe rather than traditional charities you know is it that they are people sort of feel that charities have had their chance to deal with some of these big problems and just haven't managed to so they're looking to something else is it that people feel that these models are actually genuinely better at achieving the outcomes they want to see or is it more to do with the fact that their participation sort of baked into the model of a social movement and in a way that it isn't for a lot of more traditional charities, which have fallen into the model of, you know, give us your resources and we, the charity, will take them and go and do good for you and then report back on it. And actually, people are quite taken with the idea that they can get involved, but in a way where they get to sort of see and feel the benefit of, of their involvement and their money and their time in a much more tangible way. And I, I think this is accelerated through the pandemic. And I think we've seen that as well in the rise of things like kind of mutual aid networks, um, where, again, I think part of it is that people sort of felt more of a sense of solidarity rather than charity. But also, I think you know, in those early stages of the pandemic, I remember thinking like just a really sort of visceral sense of, oh God, I want to do something. I feel helpless. I want a sense of agency. And actually, if somebody comes to you and says, get involved in this mutual aid network, you know, and and kind of help, you know, drive some goods around, deliver them to your neighbors or whatever, that sort of thing. It seems to be solving a problem. You know, you might 
sort of ask questions about whether it's genuinely the best way to solve it. But for you as the person getting involved, it gives you a very clear sense of you are doing something, you are participating, you are taking part. And I think that feels like something that more traditional charities need to understand and tap into and sort of ask why, if that is something that appeals to people, are they not offering it to them? Because otherwise people will move away, I think, to to other things increasingly. That's such an interesting point about how those um, underlying motivations and behaviours for why people would participate in civil society and how they interact with it, how, how they're uh, shifting even further and how charities need to work hard to, to, to stay really relevant there. Something that we were uh, talking about in, in the corporate world, um, which I saw in a in a third sector article in May that you were um, quoted in, was we were always very very clear that as a as a profit making organisation needed to have a sense of purpose. We needed a place within society, and we needed to be able to tangibly put our hands on that, and people needed to understand it. But what you found was fifty percent of the organisation really bought into it, and fifty percent didn't. And that kind of reflects society, right? You know, it's 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 the same within our organisations. There is a bit for me that's around how those platforms, particularly social media, were sort of reaching further, give us reach, make make sure that our message can get to the widest possible group of people. And actually this flip to community, which I think is is kind of what you're saying. You wanted to jump in your car and wanted to help people. And I think that's what we're seeing with supporting local businesses, people getting more embedded in local community, local issues and issues that they actually care about. And I think you're absolutely right that there's a there's a tangible nature to that. I want to be able to put my hands on it. I want to be able to get my hands dirty and I want to be involved. I think two really interesting things there. One is around whether the actually there is a potential downside to putting such a premium on participation particularly if we follow one model of participation and it and it is sort of more locally based which is what then happens to all those organizations that are doing really great work but that doesn't lend itself to that kind of thing and this is something we saw during the pandemic in terms of giving patterns they did shift certainly in those early stages away from giving to say international development causes and, and to some extent from other causes towards a much smaller set of organizations that were clearly kind of working on the front line of the the response to the pandemic, which is totally understandable. I, I sort of wonder whether there is a kind of longer term rebalancing towards a kind of model of philanthro localism where everybody kind of wants to do stuff around them. And I think there's a job to be done to get people to sort of think about how to balance that against the fact that there are still, you know, uh, very severe needs elsewhere in the world as well um so you know i, th- I think that is um something that we'll we'll need to to think through definitely yeah and I'm, I'm working with a small local charity that say actually the availability of grants and funding ability to get their hands on money has actually Im- improved um over the course of the last three months and, and they're finding that that the, you know, they're applying for grants and funding and they're getting what they need i would really like to know what what organizations that have suddenly found themselves unable to do a lot of their traditional face-to-face fundraising have been doing in terms of thinking about alternatives i think i've been you know i've seen lots of kind of innovative examples of people doing you know events but doing them virtually and we've all seen sort of people running marathons around their balconies and all that kind of stuff and i think that kind of thing is is really interesting and a good response in the short term it feels like it might not have that sort of you know longer term um 
sustainability. But what are the things that fundraisers have kind of tapped into because they've had to, where they think, oh, you know what, this is actually something that we could do over the longer term. And I think I'm particularly fascinated in who is tapping into the potential of things like esports? Because I don't understand esports. I just know that I've seen figures and it's absolutely massive. But there seems like there's this whole world out there with all these kind of communities in it who are incredibly engaged. They're probably quite different communities from the donor bases of most traditional charities. There's money in there, both traditional, normal money but also have value like kind of gaming tokens and stuff and you know in-game skins and this sort of stuff i'd be i don't know but i'm fascinated to know who in the charity world has sort of managed to get a foothold in that and is thinking about doing things in interesting ways there because it seems like that's the sort of stuff where now is the time we could be experimenting a bit because we have to and sort of make necessity the mother of invention a little bit yeah and as an avid sports fan and an avid gamer i'm being chucked out of the stadiums and pushed towards my games console so you're absolutely right there's a there's a captive audience there uh i'll ask my kids because you know they're they're sort of getting more involved in in that world particularly the esports which mm. i think is a yeah a fascinating area right i think it would be something that would be worth looking into and actually so we should see if we can find someone that might take part in a future podcast on the subject it would be a really good one yeah that's that's a great idea especially uh, with your now newfound love of football zoe <laughs> yeah maybe the, the the subject for another another <laughs> podcast um just to be clear i i really don't know very much about football but I'm um, reading this amazing book at the moment uh, called The Barcelona Way uh, which is all about uh, culture change at Barcelona and uh, the kind of one team thing Mm. and how you really distill that down into three particular behaviours Okay, so I probably shouldn't say too much about my um, shocking <laughs> ignorance of, about football. Uh, but the, a final question, which leads on from a lot of the themes that we've been talking about, is what do you think that civil society is going to look like post-pandemic, given all the things that we've discussed there? Stark reality and the depressing bit up front is the funding situation is still very bad for for a lot of organizations charities and others in civil society and you know we're seeing news come through all the time of organizations having to make big uh, headcount reductions i think Mick mcmillan yesterday made a an announcement about having to lose a lot of people and those things are horrible to see so you know their civil society or the charity bit of it at least will probably be a bit smaller over the short term and whether that's because we see organizations go to the wall or you know have to kind of look at radical alternatives like merger and that kind of consolidation i don't know but it it feels like we're not out of the worst of it so far unfortunately i think there's still more support required um i guess that bit of it you know that that does survive over the long term and, and civil society you know will will be resilient and will will survive um i think one of the interesting things touching on something we've said already is the extent to which we'll have to kind of acknowledge that the marketplace for doing good has got that much more crowded so you know we've already sort of said there's you know uh, new types of organizations mutual aid networks and things springing up now we've already seen kind of social movements out there and and digitally enabled movements people are looking to i think purpose-led businesses is a lot of businesses during the pandemic who have played a notable role in the response and have sort of made a big play of, of positioning themselves of ha- as having a social purpose and i don't think we yet know kind of 
what impact that has on the work of charities and how you know corporate relationships between charities and businesses might change um, over the future. Um, I I think going to the particular question, sort of digital and tech. Um, I mean, one thing I hope, well, the positive side of it is I hope that, as we were saying earlier, we kind of work out the best balance between the good bits of tech that we've all been forced to adopt and the bits that we're missing and we would like to kind of bring back in. I guess on the the more negative side, in a way, I I wonder whether this whole period of enforced digitization for everybody is going to give civil society organizations in the round a broader sense that tech issues are not something that just happens over there and they're like somebody else's problem. They're actually things that we all increasingly need to care about. Um, and as we say, you know, there's more awareness broadly in society of some of these issues. And I think the more charities and civil society organizations that see them as part of their day job, the better. Um, I think linked to that, I would like there to be a kind of greater recognition of the the importance of making space for foresight and thinking about the future in in the charity world it's you know i i totally recognize it's often very difficult in practice because most people have a day job that doesn't involve that and you know when finances are difficult and whatever it's very easy to just focus on the here and now but, but i think the the experience of having been hit by a crisis that kind of came out of nowhere and has had such a massive impact on all of us shows that doing some more radical thinking about the future and what might happen, what it might mean for civil society is really important because unfortunately, without being too pessimistic, I don't think this is necessarily a once in a lifetime crisis for all of us. I think one way or another, we're going to see other, you know, whether it's to do with climate impacts or, or other things, we're going to see other big issues like this face society and the sector. So we need to sort of make sure we're resilient and in a better place to face up to them um sort of uh better next time and then i guess the 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 final thought because i could bang on about this forever but i'll, I'll <laughs> leave it with this um i i do i'll be really interested in whether the adoption of some of these you know, digital tools and kind of enforced ways of working has a a longer term act on the sort of makeup of the sector I wonder whether, well, the two things I think are, one, is it going to break down sort of organizational walls? So we start to see ourselves less as I am part of this big institution and we kind of work more across different institutions in networks and sort of shifting groups with different people. And actually it becomes sort of less important what the the sign on your, you know, your business card is. And actually it's more about kind of who you're able to work with and in what context. And also more practically, will it have a, a big impact on the geographic distribution of the charity sector, which is very heavily skewed towards London and the Southeast at the moment still in a way that I'm not sure it needs to be. And actually, if people are able to work remotely or at least partially remotely, will that result in more organizations thinking, do you know what? We don't need a big head office in London or we don't even need a head office at all. And all of a sudden it opens up this whole new marketplace for people living in other parts of the country still being able to do really good jobs in the charity sector which would i think be great for everybody because you might be able to get some really great candidates who want a particular place to live or a particular type of lifestyle and don't want to move to london but would be amazing you know at doing a job for a particular organization so um i'm optimistic on that front so I think. absolutely i think there's some real positives that could come out of that aren't there and I loved your point about influence no longer being about having a corner office 
it's about the the change you, you drive and how you can break through some of those those silos so obviously with a with a, a movement like charity so white who i think have a, a huge amount of influence now and have done some really hard difficult work to get there obviously there's a huge amount for charity still to do around diversity but the fact that everyone is talking about it so much even more now in the wake of, of black lives matter says a lot about the the impact that they've had yeah agreed I th- and again it's as you say it's like it's not actually people who in their day job from most of them that i'm aware of are necessarily traditional leaders in a hierarchical sense in their organization but but through virtue of the work they've done in that network have taken on something of a leadership role or a, a role in driving a conversation in sector and i think we'll see a lot more of that so Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rodri. We could very happily listen to you all day. We've learned so much from this conversation and it's been fascinating to hear about where you think civil society is going and the role that digital plays in that. Thank you so much for your time. We've we've loved talking to you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Fascinating hearing from Rodri. I love the points that he was making about how uh, civil society and indeed other organisations need to consider how they approach ethics uh, in in the context of of new tech developments. Uh, Some fascinating points as well about that dependency on all those everyday platforms that all of us are, are, are using, but thinking about what could happen if any of those companies uh, change change the terms, uh, and in particular what the impact could be of uh, regulation on that sector as well, and that what that then means for the organisations that use those services. Uh, and I loved his his points about um, how you need to create yourself a uh, virtual water cooler, perhaps on Twitter, uh, but to find other ways of connecting with uh, colleagues in your organisation and outside it to create those. Uh, serendipitous moments of earth connection where the creative sparks fly. Yes, and I think we'll be hearing in our next episode from someone who has just started uh, a new role in a new organisation at a time where um, she can't physically be in the office. So I think those connections and those points of connection online are really, really important. Talking of points of connection online, um, I'd also like to throw in at the end a recommendation for a podcast, uh, not ours, but the Digital Human podcast from the BBC. Um, this is run by Alex Kratowski, um, and it's, uh, it's great every single week. Um, I often look at it and I think, oh, that might be a bit heavy <laughs> for my morning run or my afternoon walk or whatever it might be. But every time I listen to it, I find something really, really fascinating. And I listened to this one immediately, almost after the, the conversation with Rodri, and shared it with him because there was a lot of stuff that, that could act almost as a companion piece. Uh, the latest episode or the episode that we're talking about here is Solidarity. Uh, and it was exploring whether crowdfunding uh, can be a magic bullet for giving to those whose livelihoods have suffered during the pandemic. And there were some really interesting thoughts in there on giving. Um, one thing that caught my eye in particular was a section on the way that crowdfunding might have influenced young people to really question the transparency and accountability of the organisations they give to. I'm not sure often that they really understand why their parents might give uh, to a charity or make an annual donation to a charity without sort of expecting to to understand where the money is going. But their kids definitely want to know where, where it's helping, 
and, and and where they can find out that information. So I think that was really interesting and the podcast as well worth a listen. So we will put that uh, into the show notes as well. That's brilliant. And I'm really looking forward to listening to that, Paul. And as you were talking there, one point which occurred to me is that it's only a matter of time before that conversation starts to cover diversity as well. Uh, and I have seen donors talking to some charity leaders on, on Twitter now saying, can you tell me more about why there isn't more diversity on your board? Uh, I think this could be one of the, the big stories that, that breaks outside of the sector over the next year, which is why I think it's brilliant that more charities are starting to beef up their expertise in uh, equality, diversity and inclusion, because those questions are only going to become more frequent and louder. Well, that's the end. So thank you for listening to the end of episode one, season two. We'll be back in a week with Zoe. Next week, we'll be talking to Victoria Charles from Shelter, a tech leader who's had a fantastic career in charity and also public sector technology. And she's got some fascinating insights about what it's like to start a new job under lockdown and to manage a remote team, as well as lots of other fascinating predictions on trends. Later in the season, we will be talking to Liz Williams, CEO of Future.now, and we have other exciting conversations coming your way too. As usual, please do send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that uh, you feel you will do differently based on what you've learned from the interviews or any uh, comments or indeed suggestions for other people we should be speaking to. Uh, you can email us at start at the top podcast at gmail.com and you can also tweet us as well and if you've enjoyed this episode please do leave us a review on apple podcasts if you can thank you to each and every one of our listeners and we'll speak to you again soon